All right. Happy New Year, everybody. Happy New Year. All right. Let's open our Bibles to Acts chapter 14, verses 1 through 7. Acts 14, 1 through 7. Now at Iconium, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. When an attempt was made to buy both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derb, cities of Lyconia, and to the surrounding country. And there they continued to preach the gospel. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask that you would teach us today, but not just change our minds. We pray that you would change our hearts and that you would give us the boldness that we desperately need to follow Jesus today. In his name we pray, amen. So like, uh, I think it was 2005, there was this Larry King interview. You guys remember Larry King? He's still around, I don't remember, is he, is he dead? Okay, yeah. Remember Larry King? So Larry King, uh, you know, he would have this program to interview people, bring on Christians, all kinds of people, secularists, uh, tech experts, whatever. Well, back in 2005, I think it was, he had on Joel Osteen. Joel Osteen is a megachurch, uh, sort of a prosperity preacher, not the hard kind of prosperity preacher that says, like, uh, hey, uh, God will make you rich if you give me your money. Not quite like that, but uh, pretty prosperity oriented. Anyways, he's on this thing, and I'm not going to rip on, on Joel Osteen. He does that himself. He rips on himself with that bad theology. But I, but I, but I want to... Talk about this interview briefly just because it's a good example of something that we have all done. So Joel Osteen is on this, on this program. Larry King is talking to him. And so he, they finally get to the whole issue of, uh, what about hell? You believe in hell? And, you know, Joel Osteen, he's kind of like, ah, you know, I don't really like, I'm not the judge. I don't like to say, you know, I'm about positivity and feeling good. And he was like, yeah, but like, because Larry King's no dummy. He's talked to Christians. He's interviewed John MacArthur a bunch. So he's like, yeah, like people go to hell, right? In your, in your theology, like people, like people of other faiths, other religions, they believe in other gods. And he would not, he just, he had zero boldness to say the hard thing and the good thing that needed to be said in that moment. And, uh, and he knew that he blew it. I mean, he came back online that week and issued a statement uh, to all of his uh, church folk saying like, hey... I know I didn't say the right thing there. Sorry, I do affirm the gospel and all of its stuff. And this is not about even Osteen. It's about that moment when boldness is gone, when it's absent. When boldness is absent, timidity reigns, and where there is timidity, fear takes over. He couldn't say what needed to be said. And before any of us start to go like, yeah, nice teeth and mullet, bad theology, no boldness, loser. Before you do that, you've done the same thing. I've done that. 
We've all done it when like we had the opportunity to be bold and to say the thing that needed to be said as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus in one or some other capacity and we didn't do it. You're not better than Osteen. We've all done that. Now, many of you have been very faithful in much of your lives, but we have all failed in boldness. And that's what I want us to see in this passage today. I want us to really consider boldness because I do believe it is one of the primary missing ingredients of the church today. Here's what I want us to see. Authentic Christian boldness is discovered in communion and expressed in community. Authentic Christian boldness is discovered in communion. By communion, I mean a vital experiential relationship with God that is grounded through faith in Christ. That's where boldness is discovered and it is expressed in community. Now, we're gonna get into that in detail at the end. But what I want us to see in this passage is what boldness looks like and that'll set us up to then get into the nature of boldness. So here's what we're gonna see in verse one. We're gonna see that Christian boldness is vocal. It's oftentimes loud. Number two, in verse two, we'll see that Christian boldness is costly. Number three, in verse three, we'll see that Christian boldness is persistent. And in verses four through seven, we will see that Christian boldness is not stupid. First of all, Christian boldness is vocal. Look again at verse one. Now at Iconium, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. So this is Paul's first missionary journey. It's him and Barnabas. They got a few other people with them. They're going around and they tend to go from large city to large city, usually along one of the Roman highways, right? It's a part of his strategy. So he's going, now he's going to Iconium. It's another important city. Uh, and, And really, if you look at Paul's strategy, you can see he's got a method to it, right? He tends to find the larger city, the more important city, important culturally in terms of influence. Uh, And then he finds the synagogue in that city. So it's cities and synagogues. That's Paul's mentality, right? He wants to go where the people are gathered, where there's access to the word of God so that he can expound upon it. That's his strategy. Now, this is oftentimes why many church planting organizations talk about the importance of targeting large metropolitan cities, which is a good thing to do. But it is not the only thing to do. There are multiple strategies and ways of approaching church planting, and we need to be planting churches in rural areas, in suburban areas, and in urban areas. We need to hit all of them. Just because Paul had a strategy here doesn't mean it's always a strategy for all churches at all times, okay? So, so Paul tends to focus on cities and synagogues. That's what he does. And he goes there, and they, they're able to interact with the scriptures, and it says that they spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. So they're being faithful to the word of God, to the ministry that they've been given. They're preaching, they're teaching, they're speaking, and they're doing it in such a way that they're seeing tremendous fruit, right? There are conversions. So two things here that I, that I really, I'm encouraged by, right? First of all, it doesn't simply say that they were preaching, right? We tend to think about Christian witness as something a bit more formal. I'm going to present the four spiritual laws, or I'm going to take you to hear an evangelistic preacher present a message, or bring them to church on Sunday, and these things are fine, right? Um, it, we tend to think about it as a very formal thing. But what it says here is not that they were preaching, but that they were speaking, Right? They spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. So this would include both formal and informal presentations of the gospel and the truth of God's word. Formal and informal. In fact, in the synagogue, there has long been, for centuries, been been this tradition for a a few thousand years, right? Where in the synagogues, it's oftentimes called like Shever Torah. And so there would be the reading and the opening of God's word, but then there would be 
not just monologue, but dialogue. There'd be discussion, debate even about it. And this still goes on today. So there's speaking, there's argumentation, there's reasoning, there's cross-referencing, there's all this stuff going on in the synagogue. So it's perfect for Paul and Barnabas to get in there, open up the word, and point people to Jesus. And that's the thing. They were doing it in such a way, right? They were speaking in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. Now, one of the things that we do as Christians is we say things like, and we do this here at Redeemer, doesn't matter if you preach a bad sermon or if you present the gospel in a messy way, God can still use it because God's bigger than you. And as long as you got the word in there, it's all good. And that's true, that's very, very true. In fact, I wouldn't be a preacher if that wasn't true because I'm way too insecure and I feel like, ooh, that was super confusing. Uh, I wasn't as clear as I wanted to be, it was kind of messy. But what I believe is like, ah, but it had the word in it, God's got it, God's gonna do his thing. And that's all true. But it's also true that we need to pay careful attention to how we present the word. Right? They spoke in such a way that it led to people trusting in Christ. Now, this doesn't mean that we can persuade somebody into the kingdom. We can't. That's the work of God in the heart of a sinner. But what we can do is we can preach clearly, that we can preach about Christ, and we can compel people to faith and response. Right? That's really what they're doing. When you look at the preaching of the apostles here, they were clear, they were articulate, but they didn't ground their arguments in a philosophy or in rhetoric. They didn't look to, to persuade people with beautiful speech, but with a beautiful message, right? The message of Christ. So it was clearly articulated. It was always about Christ, right? It was about Jesus and his fulfillment of the law, his ransoming of sinners, the forgiveness of sins. And there was always this call to respond in faith and repentance. So that's what's happening. They're speaking with clarity with precision, and the consequence is Jews and Gentiles are both converting. People are believing. And this is a pretty good response, right? Because what can unite Jew and Gentile, in particular in the first century? Not a lot. We're going to see two things that can here uh, this morning. The greatest thing is Christ, right? And this is one of Paul's messages. John makes this point quite a bit in both the Gospel of John and in uh, his epistles, that in Jesus Christ, there's no more division between Jew and Gentile. We are one family, one people. There's no more slave, free. We're all one. We're one people, equally honored, equally loved, equally valued. So the Jews and the Gentiles are both believing, and this is great. This is, this is God's blessing on the faithfulness of the people. And so what we see here is that Christian boldness is vocal. It's not always vocal, but it, there, it is oftentimes vocal. It needs to be vocal. And what boldness does is boldness orients us outside of ourselves toward others who are in need. Right? Because when it's all about you and Jesus and your own personal relationship and it's just about you cultivating piety and communion with God, if that's as far as it's going to go, your faith is really weak, if not incomplete. Because God didn't give you the ministry of reconciliation for yourself, but for you and for other people. See, boldness moves us outward, right? When you're bold, you begin to think about other people, right? Because that's where boldness oftentimes comes into play. And so what do we do? We pray, begin praying for people. We have them in mind. We begin to speak to people. And here's where it really becomes important. When we are oriented outward and we begin to pray for others and speak to other people about Jesus, we are now encountering risk, risk. Boldness, we haven't defined it yet. I'll give you a technical definition of boldness later. 
But it, with boldness, there is always an element of facing and not backing down from risk. There is risk. There is some sort of danger that you face. And when your faith is oriented outward toward other people, not only to be faithful to God, but to bless people in need, you are encountering risk. And that leads us to point number two, that Christian boldness is not just vocal, it is also costly. Look what happens in verse two. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they go in there, uh, Paul, Barnabas, they're preaching the gospel, they're making disciples, people are believing, it's crazy, Jew and Gentile, this is, this is awesome. And so they're seeing God at work, but not everybody is believing, right? Not all believe, and some people are actually hostile to the whole thing. In fact, among all of these people, among Jews and Gentiles that don't believe, there was a group among the Jews that were so jealous and frustrated by the success of this what looks to them like a Jewish subcategory or, or splinter group that is growing. They're jealous of this. They're, they're frustrated by it. And so they begin to poison the minds of the Greeks. Why? We've already seen them do this, right? We've already, if you've been with us as we go through the book of Acts, we've seen them do this. So this segment of unbelieving Jews begins to poison the minds of the Greeks or of the Gentiles. Why would they do this? Well, they would do this because more of the social power uh, and cultural influence was found among the Gentile population. And so they said, all right, listen, we want to stamp this group out. Like, why don't you help us? And they, so they poisoned the mind. And what are you doing when you're poisoning somebody's mind? They're not speaking truth. They're introducing error. Right, so the, the, this particular group of Jewish people were introducing error into these other group of unbelieving uh, people, saying, like, you cannot trust these Christians. Now, what did it look like? We already know, if you go back and you look at the first and second century, uh, there were lies that were told about the church that were designed to ruin the reputation. This is the risk, right? Here's the risk, first level of risk. They ruined your reputation, and they do this by lying. And so the lies that they oftentimes told, there were two main ones that they told early on. One is, is that, oh, the church, that new group, they're all incestuous. It's all like a super gross incestuous thing. Now, where would they get this idea? Because we love each other and we call each other brother, sister. Now, it's not true, and I don't think they misunderstood. I think they were misrepresenting. I think the idea was we're going to attack them by taking things that they say and believe and twisting them to make it look ugly and perverted. The other thing that they did besides accusing the early church of being incestuous was by saying, oh, um, they're cannibals. Why would they say that? Where would they get that? Lord's Supper, communion. Yeah, thanks, Jesus. You must eat my flesh and drink my blood. That's literally what Jesus said. Like, man, Jesus, like, it's hard enough. <laughs> like, being Christian, you've got to say things weird and then make everybody freak out. Um, yeah, and so that, but that we run with this, right? Because now Jesus gives us, oh, this is my body, which is broken for you. This is my blood. Eat, drink. So these rumors, they would start these rumors and, and try to freak people out about, about the early church. And then it's effective, right? Rumors, gossip, slander can ruin your reputation. It happens today, by the way. It happens today. Now, back then, it was like the church was young. It wasn't so easy to just point and go, look at how corrupt those pastors are. But today, it's pretty easy, unfortunately. They don't really have to make up a bunch of lies. They can just look at the worst examples of us and go, you want to follow that mess? 
Because I'll be honest, I don't. Stinking discouraging. But for most Christians, they, they, they don't see that, right? Those are the, the popular stories in the news. When they want to take you down, when they want to attack your reputation, what do they say about us today? They say that you are hateful, bigoted, and intolerant. That hurts. That hurts, right? You're, you will not be a, a racist or a misogynist. You, you will be loving of all people, accepting of all people, and inviting all people to repent of their sins, their particular sins, and to trust in Jesus. And the world will call you intolerant and hateful and bigoted because you are not accepting and embracing other people's ideologies, philosophies, and theologies. And so what they'll do is they'll brand you as a hate monger. You're filled with hate, and they'll poison the minds of the people around us trying to get them to go, oh, yeah, look at how intolerant they are when in reality, I'll tell you what, we have really strong theological convictions here at Redeemer. We're, like, super serious about theology. Uh, but we love people. You people show compassion and kindness to people in the world of every conceivable stripe. And... We will invite them, just like we invite everybody, to repent of their sins and to believe in the gospel. So you see, Christian boldness is costly. There's always a level of risk, and the first level of risk that we will always encounter is the loss of reputation. Here's the thing. Boldness is never needed where there is no risk. If you feel like, well, I don't really feel like I need much boldness. Well, why is there no risk in your life? Why is there no risk? Where, why is there no opportunity for people to retaliate against you for your faith? I don't need to be bold if everything's easy. There's got to be danger. So Christian boldness is costly. It can cost you. It's vocal. But it's also persistent. Look at verse 3. Christian boldness is persistent. So they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. So notice what's happening here. They go in on their first missionary journey. They get to Iconium. They preach the gospel in the synagogue. They're seeing Jews and Gentiles converted. But there's a response, right, a reaction from, from the unbelieving groups. And now they're, they're, they're poisoned. Their minds have been poisoned. They're, they're starting to com become combative. There's real opposition. And so what Paul and Barnabas and the crew decide to do is stick around. I like that. I like that. They're like, oh. Wow, we saw great fruit here, so we saw a lot of conversions. That's a good reason to stick around. And everybody, not everybody, but a sizable group of these people really hate us, and they're misrepresenting us. Now, let me tell you what they're not doing. They're not sticking around like tough guys. And I know a lot of you are like, yeah, man, that's right. We're not going to be intimidated. We're not going to back down. That, that's not what's, I don't think that's what's happening here. Um, I believe that they're sticking around because they actually love lost people. They want to invest even in the people that are slandering them. They actually want to see these people converted. Paul's heart, right, he says it again and again, I love my Jewish brothers and sisters, right, and I want to see them converted so they stick around. You know what they're being? They're not so much being defiant as they are being patient. That's what they're being. They're suffering well. So they say, oh, it's going to be tough. Well, we're going to stick around, and you know what we're going to do? We're going to keep preaching the word. That's boldness. 
Boldness is patient and therefore persistent. See, what's the temptation when things get hard, when things get hot? What's the temptation? To get quiet, right? You've been there. I've been there. Man, if people start mocking you or, or, or coming at you and giving you a hard time because of your decisions, right? I can remember as a new Christian following Jesus now, I was 18, I was 19 at the time, and uh, I was mocked by all of these these peers that I had in uh, at Wabansi Community College, right? So I was there, and they were all, they, they, first of all, at first they didn't believe me when I said I was no longer sexually active, uh, and then they were just incredulous about the whole thing. They're like, this, this is the dumbest decision in your life. Why would you, you're a young single person, and it's like doesn't, it doesn't, they couldn't compute. And so they would mock me, right? So what's the easy thing to do? I won't bring that up again. I'm just going to chill out, mind my business, and learn how to, learn how to solder copper pipes together and sweat these pipes so that I can become an HVAC technician, whatever I was doing at the time. And that's the temptation, right? Because it's easier just like, all right, man, I'm just going to mind my business, keep my head down because I don't want to deal with the drama. But Christian boldness is persistent. It's patient and it's persistent because God's glory and the good of our neighbors is worth our suffering. And notice this, that as they're doing this, God is with them. And how is God showing that he's with them? He's performing signs and wonders through them. That's what it says, right? So they continue to do this, right? They are speaking boldly for the Lord, the Lord who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. So this is part of the reason why, in the, certainly in, in, in the Reformed tradition, in the Baptist tradition, we understand that the miraculous sign gifts of healing people on the spot, holy, totally, and completely, that gift is no longer operational today. God still heals. God still performs miracles. We're good with that. But this gift, like Peter had, to be able to say to a man with completely withered legs on the spot, rise and walk and be healed, and he is perfectly, completely, truly healed. That, we don't see that happening today. Not that God doesn't perform miracles, but that gift, we don't see that. And the reason we don't see that is because of what's said here. The Lord was using these sign gifts during this apostolic era to verify that the word that they were speaking and writing was the very word of God. It was how he testified, these are not only my people, but this is my word that's being spoken. And today we don't have miraculous sign gifts accompanying us when we're preaching the gospel, but we do still see a miracle happening, right? There is still a miraculous work of God that happens when we're preaching the gospel that verifies that what we're saying is true. And that miracle is called conversion. It's the new birth. It's regeneration. It's how God changes a person's heart and mind. He takes a person who's spiritually dead and makes them spiritually alive. He changes people that is every bit as dramatic, in fact, I'd say more so, than physical healing. So Christian boldness is persistent. And what what it's really doing, what boldness is doing, is it's giving strength to Christians so that they are empowered to continue in faithfulness as they follow Jesus in the world. Because guess what? Following Jesus in the world is crazy hard. The world is hard. Sometimes I love the world when I discover a new like metal band or something. I'm like, ooh, that's really nice. That's a good thing. Find a new movie or show to watch that's pretty good. New food. And then sometimes I just hate the world because it is a constant onslaught of temptation and lies and deceit. It's hard. 
It's hard to follow Christ in this world, but thankfully we're not left alone. We've got the spirit of the living God that dwells in us. He gives us grace, he gives us the community, and he gives us this gift of boldness. We need boldness to walk through this world faithfully. So, Christian boldness is vocal, Christian boldness is costly, Christian boldness is persistent. Number four, finally, Christian boldness isn't stupid. Look at verses four through seven. But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. When an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers, see here they are united, Jews and Gentiles, actually united again, not because of Jesus, well, kind of because of Jesus, but in the opposite direction. They want to stamp out this work. To mistreat them and to stone them. When they learned of this, they fled to Lystra and Derb, cities of Lyconia, and to the surrounding country, and there they continued to preach the gospel. So a couple of things here. Um... When persecution gets organized, it intensifies, right? When it's not organized and it's just sort of like cultural things happening here and there, it can be intense in pockets, but it tends not to last very long. But when persecution gets organized, it always intensifies. You start to get government backing, social movements behind it. And that's what's happening here. The persecution is organized and it is intensifying. And what's the risk now? The risk is not the loss of reputation, the loss of life. And so boldness now, please hear me, boldness is what moved them to run. We think, oh, it's fear that moves you to run, right? <laughs> fear moves me to run uh, if, I, <laughs> if I needed to. That's not what's happening here. I mean, fear is certainly a part of it. And let me tell you this. If you Google, because I've been reading about boldness all week, if you look up search, uh, Google search articles on boldness, there's tons of them out there, right? And they're always, they're always from these like boss girl or alpha male blogs uh, where people are like, boldness is being unafraid in the face of danger. No, it isn't. That's stupid. Being unafraid? In the face of danger, I don't know anybody who has ever faced real danger successfully, who has really risked their life or their reputation or their job and didn't feel afraid. But they do it anyway. That's boldness. That's courage. If you're not afraid, where's the virtue? Now, in the face of fear, in feeling that, they persevere. So, it isn't fear that made them run. It isn't even just escaping danger that made them run, though that is definitely a part of it. It's not escaping danger as much as it is the need to enter another city. See, because that's their calling. They understand what their calling is. Like, listen, they don't want to die. Nobody, nobody really wants to die. Paul talks really honestly about this. Like, man, it'd be pretty sweet to be dead because then I could just be with the Lord and be chilling and having a great time, being glory. But it's more important for me to be here right now. And that's the mentality. Right? Like, listen, we don't want to die. I mean, it'd be sweet in a sense. But like, we've got things to do. We've got people to reach. And so if we're going to lose our life here, it means we can't continue. So let's get out of here so that we continue to be faithful, boldly preaching the word. And so what do they do? They go to Lystra. It's like 20 miles away. They go to Lystra. By the way, Lystra, not a major city. More remote, to use the word scholars say. It's a remote, it's a remote little, little place. So why are they going there? Well, they're going there to preach the gospel. They're going there to, to continue to do the work, but they're also going, yes, to escape danger so that they can continue as long as God allows it. Christian boldness isn't stupid. 
It's not a death wish, but it is costly. And listen, make no mistake about it, all the apostles are murdered. <laughs> like, none of them got away with it, right? Not, not in the world's eyes, right? They, they all suffered. They were sawn in half. They were beheaded. They were crucified upside down. They were all willing to give their lives, but not for nothing. They were going to go hard with the gospel. So here's what I want to leave you guys with. What actually is boldness? Because Christians get it wrong. There's a whole lot of big mouth, super arrogant Christians out there who think and present themselves as being bold warriors for Jesus when they're just big mouths. Jesus doesn't need big mouths, but he does want us to be bold followers. So what is boldness? Here's my definition, okay? You can find a better one, I'm sure, but this is the one I worked on. Boldness, Christian boldness, is God-given confidence, right? It's God-given confidence that equips Christians to joyfully endure opposition while publicly confessing Christ. That's Christian boldness. It is not being unafraid in the face of terror. It is a God-given confidence, so it doesn't come from us. A God-given confidence. It's not natural to us. It's a God-given confidence that equips us as Christians to joyfully endure opposition and to confess Christ publicly. What that means is is that uh, the, the boldness that we want, the boldness that we need is not arrogance. It's not hubris. It's not even just mere confidence. Like some people are just naturally confident. And if you're a naturally confident person, I think you are awesome. Because I wish I had just uh, like 20% of that. If I could take 20, I'd take 10%. Because I am not a confident person in myself, right? And I know confident people. Like lots of my friends are very confident. And I, you can always spot, I can always spot them because they're like their heads up and walk around. You know, and that's not because they think they're a big deal. They're just confident. They're comfortable in their skin. I'm always uncomfortable wherever I'm at. There's just never a time when I'm comfortable. If I'm all by myself and nobody can see me, I might be comfortable for a few minutes. That's about it. So it's not that natural kind of confidence that people have. That's a good thing. It's not a bad thing. It's not that. It's not found in self. It's not found in skill or knowledge. A lot of Christians think like, oh, if I just get more knowledge, if I develop my skills, then I'll have confidence to actually, and boldness to do the things God's called me to do. But I'll tell you right now, you will never be skilled enough or knowledgeable enough to really ground yourself with a boldness that you need to persevere because there's always gonna be somebody smarter. There's always gonna be somebody more skilled. There's always going to be opportunities for you to fail, and you will. Here, let me give you an example. Acts chapter 4, verse 13. Now, when they saw the boldness, right? When they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. This is a big deal. Right, because what do they see? What is it about Peter and John that's blowing them away? It's not just that they are effective in their ministry. It's not just that they are having a big impact. It's that these guys are bold. They have this, this God-given confidence and strength that faces down persecution. They persevere. 
they, where does it come from? They're not educated. They're not smart dudes, right? They're not, they're not culturally important, and yet there they are. What is it? Even, even the people watching this went, oh, oh, they've been with Jesus. They got a boldness that didn't come from themselves. It couldn't have come from themselves. It came from Christ. Boldness is not found in self. That's why true boldness cultivates humility, not arrogance, because you're not making much of yourself. It's not about you. It's not because you are so articulate and winsome and charming. It's because God is with you. Right? Here's the thing. What I said at the beginning, true Christian boldness is found in communion. Communion meaning our vital experiential relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ. That's where we find boldness, right? Because boldness is first discovered before the face of God, before we're ever enabled to be bold in the world. You are not going to have the right kind of boldness. Listen, until you have boldness before the face of God, the world will eat you alive. You will not be confident. But look at, uh, look at Ephesians chapter 3, uh, verse 12, or you can, just, you can just listen. It says, in whom, speaking of Jesus, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you. Don't lose heart, be bold, be brave, right? Because in Jesus, we all have boldness, access with confidence through faith in Christ. So this, this is the whole point, right? That, that our boldness before the face of God comes from Jesus. Who can stand before God and live? No sinner. We would be consumed by God's holiness. But we can stand before the face of God and only experience his love and his acceptance. Why? Because we are in Christ, the substitute, the savior of sinners. God is pleased with his son. We are in him. Therefore, God is pleased with us. So once you have bold access to God, not because of who you are, but because who Jesus is, and now you can run into the Father's presence and without being turned away, without being ignored, without being crushed or judged, because you have boldness before God, now when you go into the world, you have boldness with God. Like, listen to uh, Joshua. The book of Joshua is after, um, after Moses has led Israel out of Egypt, out of slavery, led them into the wilderness for a whole host of reasons. They didn't enter the promised land that God had offered them, right? But now God's tasking Joshua with this responsibility. You're gonna lead my people into the promised land and I'm gonna give it to you. It's gonna be amazing, right? It's a big, tall order, right? Because you've got weak, scary, skinny Israel facing these Canaanites, right, that look like yoked up beasts on HGH. So they're like, I don't really know. So here is what God says to Joshua. Have I not commanded you? Like, I've told you what I want you to do. So be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed because the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. See, you can't have boldness in the world unless you have boldness with God. And you can't have boldness with God unless you have boldness before the face of God. And that's only through faith in Christ. This boldness is expressed 
in community. And what I mean by that is it's expressed within the community of faith, that is the church, it's expressed among God's people and we learn it from each other, we feed into it with each other. When you really see it demonstrated well, it's encouraging and you wanna be bold too. But it's also expressed in the community of the secular city, the secular world, right? That's oftentimes where it comes into reality. Right, so in Proverbs 28, one says, like, well, the wicked are always running away. The wicked are always afraid, but the righteous are as bold as a lion. Right, and it's not because we are better than somebody else, it's because God is actually with us. It's why in 2 Timothy 1, 6 and 7, we're told, listen, God hasn't given you a spirit of timidity, but of power. Right, like, you don't have to be afraid. You, you, can, you can be bold, now, here's the thing that's I, it's really helpful for me. God doesn't actually need me to be bold. God doesn't need you to be bold. I need me to be bold. You need you to be bold. God, listen, God can use scared, timid, wobbly, need Christians who are barely surviving, right? He can use that. He, he, he does it all the time. He does it with me. Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. And that's, that's part of the issue here, right? Faith, an essential part of faith is boldness. Because what is faith? Uh, faith, Hebrew says, it's the assurance of things not seen. So you can't measure it, you can't test it, you can't prove it. But you believe it. Right? Faith is trust. It is essentially trust, dependency on God and what he has said. Any movement of faith like that requires a kind of boldness. Now, since nobody's faith is perfect, nobody's boldness is redlining either, right? Uh, there are different levels and degrees to this. But boldness is a part of it. Because you're trusting, you're acting when there is the risk that maybe this is all just a made-up religion. Maybe this is all in my head. Some of you don't have that experience. Most of us do, and some of us will actually admit it. But then what do we do? We read God's word, and we trust it, and the Spirit confirms with us that we are the children of God, that this is God's word, that this is all true. Boldness is a part of faith, right? That you can confess your sins without God judging you for them because Jesus has atoned for them. If you're not a Christian, if you're not a follower of Jesus, this is what I want for you more than anything, to have a boldness before the face of God that comes not from your own moral improvement. You'll never get there. But a boldness that, before the face of God that comes from the Savior who reconciles you to God perfectly so that there is nothing between you and the Father but love. It's a reconciliation that you can't break. That gives us boldness. If you don't have boldness... The absence of boldness leads to timidity. Timidity gives way to fear, and fear will win. And we need boldness. We're going to follow Jesus in 2023. <laughs> uh, we need to be bold. And yeah, it's going to be public. Sometimes it's going to be very public. But it's always going to be internal. It's always going to be personal. It's always genuinely rooted between, rooted in, in your faith in Jesus. Because you're going to face opposition of all kinds, and they won't always be public. You will oftentimes need boldness of spirit to face the, the temptations and the, and the demons and, and, and the world and the attacks that are coming to you very personally and even privately. 
It's boldness that says, greater is he who is in me than he who is in the world. That's boldness. To believe that, to live like that, to say no temptation has overtaken me, but such as is common to man, and God is faithful, he will provide a way of escape that I can stand up underneath this thing. Because I don't naturally believe that. What I naturally believe is, I'm terrible, I'm weak, I'm going to get wrecked by this temptation. But faith says, and boldness says, no, God is with you, God is in you. What can the world possibly do to you? Stand firm. Yeah, authentic Christian boldness, that's what we need. Real Christian boldness. Not arrogance, not hubris. But a divinely given confidence that equips us to joyfully endure. You want to know what boldness looks like? Remember in Acts, what, 16? Paul and Silas, tortured in prison. What are they doing? Singing. You know who sings after being tortured? Crazy people and people filled with the Holy Spirit. Those are the only two options. Crazy people who've lost all their marbles, which I understand, like, that can happen. Torture can bring out... Or there is a divinely given sense of boldness the courage, the conviction. They're singing. What can you do to me? What can you do to me? I mean, yeah, you could torture me. You could take my life, but what can you really do? So they sing. Authentic Christian boldness like this that allows us to endure opposition joyfully and to confess Christ publicly. This is found in communion with God. And that means you can have it. You can be bold this year. You could be strong this year, not because of you, but because of Jesus. And it's expressed in community, which means if you're going to try and be bold apart from the local church, and you're, you're, you're likely to really suffer. We're not wired for that. Boldness is strengthened and supported by the fellowship of the saints. So I want, I mean, I'm praying that, that I am more bold this year than I've been at any other year following Jesus. Not arrogant, but confident that God will do what he says, that he's good, and that he's with us. I'm praying that for all of us, and I'm praying for you who do not yet believe that you will find that there is a kindness in God who so reconciles you to himself that though you have utterly failed him and sinned almost as bad as I have, he will allow you such access to him that you can be bold in approaching him through Jesus our Lord. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask that you would teach us, that you would give us the boldness that we lack, that we would see boldness in one another and then be encouraged by that. Lord, we, uh, we ask that... Uh, that our boldness would make much of Jesus and not ourselves, that our message would be clear, that it would be Christ-centered, and that we would, without apology, invite all sinners to repent and to believe the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.